0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Mastering Finland. I'm Matt. We hope you're having a great day. Our guest for this episode is William Couch, the public affairs officer at the United States Embassy in Helsinki. Originally from the great state of Alabama, Bill has been working in foreign service since 2006, and prior to coming to Finland, he served in China and Barbados, and Finland is his first assignment in Europe. So thanks for being with us today, Bill.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. So so great to join you here.
0: Your background uh, is originally in education. You were you were a, a middle and high school social sciences teacher, and then you cha- taught uh, geography at the university level. Yeah. So what made you want to change careers? Well, it,
1: Matt, I mean, I had a very blue collar upbringing, um, and my world was pretty small place, uh, a cozy place, um, you know, with friends and family just in northwest Alabama. Um, but as as, um, you know, and being a school teacher was a was was fantastic. I was a happy teacher. I know some uh, former teachers who got out of the profession for various reasons. They weren't satisfied or they were frustrated uh, by usually not the kids. Usually it's the bureaucracy, you know, yeah. and, uh, and the whole process. But I wasn't that person. I was I was very happy where I was and at the um, I had been in education for a little over a decade. And I had pretty much during that 10 years done almost everything I could. Right. I had taught seventh grade through 12th grade. I did, I was even teaching uh, part time at the at the university there in Huntsville. Um, but um, and and actually at the high school I was at, I was teaching a lot of the curriculum curriculum. Uh, that I wrote, I wrote my own curriculum. So obviously I was pretty pleased with what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't just say all that because it took, it took the opportunity. It took this career to kind of pull me away from, from that. Um, I've always had a wanderlust. My wife and I had just reached the point in the early two thousands where we could afford to travel and we couldn't get enough of it. Um, you know, we, we were living in a very modest home, driving very old cars all so that we could afford to travel. Yeah. And so when I stumbled across the State Department's uh, website and their recruiting website, actually doing research for a lesson that I was doing, uh, a teaching government class. And, um, and, you know, I just one thing led to another. And I said, well, well, what do you think? I sent this an email to my wife and asked her, what do you think about the, taking this test? And she's like, well, eh, you know, I don't know, living abroad. And then she saw how how relatively few people. Uh, I think at the time is maybe two percent, one or two percent uh, folks actually get through and and actually uh, enter the foreign service. So I think when she saw those numbers, she she felt reassured that there was no way I would make it, and <laughs> she said, "Go for it." And here we are, uh, fifteen years or so later, um, and and still still enjoying it. Oh, that's great!
0: Yeah. I have to say, like, uh, I, I guess I'd be interested in maybe checking that out myself. Um, it's
1: yeah, be careful.
0: Yeah, be careful. Exactly. <laughs> I might hey, look, just get you it. Know,
1: it, it, it. The thing that's been great about it is, I mean, I encourage anyone and everyone to travel, uh, even if you mm-hmm. don't think you like traveling. Getting outside the country, and Matt, you know this—you're living in Europe and in Finland—and um, it really gives you a different perspective, even, even a couple of weeks or a few weeks at a time, it, it, it gives you a different perspective on the United States and your home. Mm-hmm. But the, the greatest thing, and I had a former student contact me not long ago, asking questions about the foreign service. And I said, the thing that I still love the most about it is it affords me the opportunity to live and work and, and be in a place for, you know, two or three years. I've done eight years total in China. Uh, it really gives me, cause I did three tours there And Mm -hmm. um, it really gives me an opportunity to know a place and and start to understand. You know, you're never going to fully understand maybe someone else's culture It is the same as if you grew up in it. But definitely gives you a good enough. uh, uh, It gives you time to kind of absorb everything and and understand a place. And so, um, you know, uh, two weeks at a time or a week or two vacation. That's great. It's a good introduction um but this career lets me you know really kind of get into it and understand places a lot better so that's just personally satisfying and um and you know is is part of the work that I do as a diplomat um but it's the part that I like the best
0: yeah i actually the one of those uh, quotes that i i really love is the one where the world is a book and if those who don't travel only read a page um and i you know, with my, my own experience with traveling too, because I, I kind of, my first time abroad was, I think it was like 2015. It wasn't all that long ago. And, or, two, well, no, I went, to, I went to France in 2012, but still that also wasn't that long ago. And I started to really appreciate being able to experience these other cultures. I mean, Fr- France is a great uh, example because, the French culture that is kind of stereotypically taught to Americans is not quite what you would experience when you go there. You might be surprised uh, with what what you, you know, France is not going to be exactly what you think it is because of all these false uh, stereotypes and everything that have been sort of put into all of our pop culture. And it, it helped me to realize that when you do travel, you start to really get to see firsthand what what the other cultures are really like and it helps you to uh connect with these other people and really I don't know just realize that that we're all people and we come from different places and backgrounds but you know it's it's something that's kind of great about all of us too and I think it's also traveling can help sort of wipe out a lot of these uh, prejudices and ignorance that that people often have when they just, they have these thoughts and feelings about people that they've never even interacted with. And once you get over there and you're right in the middle of it, you get a completely different sense of it. So, Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I mean, I,
1: I couldn't agree more. I would just, you know, some of the, some of the words, prejudices and falsehoods, you know, all of that sounds completely negative. I would just point out also that it's actually pretty natural in so much that we we're think about this. Think about how foreigners perceive the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and this is part of my job. And even in this world where we're more connected than ever, and you can look up anything and, and Wikipedia, or whatever YouTube, yeah. you could you could you could go into all you want to on a culture if you if you really want to try to dig deep on the on a computer screen. That being said, I still think that when I encounter when I encounter whether they're Finns or Bajans or Chinese uh, citizens. A lot of what they perceive the United States to be like is what they have consumed in our our one of our greatest exports, and that's our pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, so they want to talk about uh, Taylor Swift. You know, they want to talk about uh, you know the the films, the movies that they've seen, and and so they've got this kind of view of the you know One of the most common questions I got during my years in in China was, "Oh, you're an American, you must own a gun, right?" And and so you know they just their default thought is that all Americans have guns. Now I'm from Alabama, so my answer was actually yes. But <laughs> so I, I actually reinforced the stereotype. But um, you know the things that they would talk about, and you know race relations are so horrible in America. And I mean, granted, we do have a problems. We just saw that you know yeah a absolutely ago, but. Uh, I had a Chinese friend come visit me in Alabama, and he was—he literally had friends. He had friends telling him he shouldn't go there because he might get, might be lynched, he might be murdered because he's Chinese. And so, uh, when I finally convinced him to to come, and I, I promised him I'd keep him safe, right? Uh, I guess with my gun or something. <laughs> and, uh, and but he had a great time. He had a fantastic time. You know, he rented a pickup truck and he drove all over the place and uh, which was a little bit scary, honestly, but because um, I was riding with him. Uh, but but, you know, he he came away with like, wow, people are so friendly and everyone was so curious about me and China. And I think that that's that happens all, you know, that just happens naturally. We get a simplified, distorted view of other countries and that's mm-hmm. what travel And living abroad helps you to kind of overcome. And the one thing I really love that you said there, Matt, because I I saw this and it doesn't matter how different they are. Really, you figure out having lived in some pretty diverse cultures now, uh, everyone does want the same thing. They want a better future for their children. You know, they want safety, stability. They want, you know, just a little better life. Mm -hmm. And um, and and those are those are kind of universals and uh, a nice reminder uh, of how very alike we really are.
0: Yeah. Well, so how long have you been in Finland and how long does a tour last and everything?
1: Yeah, this is a <clears throat> typical tour for a mid-level foreign service. It's a three year tour. Um, so I've been here, I guess over two and a half years. I, I leave in about four or five months. Uh, okay. I don't really want to think, I don't, really don't want to think about it. Uh, I've started the process a little bit, um, uh, but I'm not in any hurry to leave. Uh, that's for sure, because we really enjoyed our time here. Yeah, you know, usually it's usually it's a three year tour. There are some places uh, that are uh, two year tours. There are some places that are one year tour. It just depends on uh, the post and um, you know danger, pay, and things like that all get calculated in. You know, there's some places honestly that we that are dangerous, and and so you're away from your family. Your family can't accompany you. Um, and those places tend to be one year tours, but uh okay. typical tour, typical tours, three
0: years. All right. And so before coming to Finland, you, you had to, uh, what go to the embassy in DC and start to learn Finnish. Do they, do they, they start to train you in the language and everything beforehand.
1: Yeah. I'm, uh, and actually it's funny you should ask, man, I'm one of the last, um, uh, Diplomats coming here that will get Finnish language training. Uh, I took Finnish, uh, or it took me. Um, so, but uh, I only say that because it was quite difficult. I went into Finnish language training uh, overconfident because I had uh, I had tested out in Chinese a couple of times. And and I speak passable Mandarin. Uh, if you drop me off in, in remote China today, I, I feel like I could you know find my way back to <laughs> back to Beijing pretty easily. Um, but but Finnish, gosh, it, it was a, a whole other animal. Uh, so I, I I went into Finnish training overconfident because of my my Chinese skills, and uh, and was humbled quite quickly. Uh, but. My replacement, uh, the officer who'd be replacing me this summer, will not get finished training. Uh, the State Department's dropped finish from uh, as a requirement for this job, which is sad in the way. And I could make a really good case for why they should have continued it. But, um, you know, frankly, you, I mean, you live here. Um, I, I think in my two and a half years, I've run into two people uh, who I couldn't communicate with in English. Uh, very effectively and i'm I'm not really sure one of them was even Finnish
0: for sure the language is pretty different from the languages that we we've been exposed to previously like even even like uh, something something's very different from English like Chinese is it's also very different from Finnish so um it's you know you you tend to find some things that make sense or that are have like the similarities there's a lot of these like cognates that come up but in general the structure and grammar of the language is a, a bit hard to grasp
1: yeah matt that's that's the thing that got me and what i've learned about myself is, is grammar uh and finish if you're not a if you don't like grammar <laughs> then this <laughs> is not the language for you um but uh it's it, and that aspect mandarin is is Usually pretty simple. It's subject, verb, uh, direct object, you know, a basic sentence structure. Things don't change. Um, you know, words don't transform. You know, it is what it is. Um, they don't even really many words don't even really do plurals. You know, you just you just put the number in front of it. So yeah. uh, they're, you really don't change things that much when you're speaking. So that was that was a good fit for me. I just didn't realize it at the time. Um, but, the Finnish grammar. Ooh.
0: Well, so <laughs> w- have, have you been able to like really learn very much at all? Cause I, I mean, I guess you're, you're saying that you don't have to learn it because everybody can speak English with you. So this is what I come, I come into contact with this all the time too, that I'm sort of like enabled by everybody else to just continue being like not so fluent in Finnish because everyone's just going to switch to English with me. But uh, at the same time, I am trying, but it's 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 difficult and it's difficult also when you can't make it like your full time job. It's something you just kind of have to kind of do on the side. So have you been able to pick it up? No, no. My finish is much worse than it was before
1: I came. I, I, could, <laughs> actually, I, could, actually, I could say a few things and finish uh, before I came and now very little. Uh, I could still read some stuff uh so, yeah uh, you know reading it and deciphering it I'm, I'm okay at um but you know increasingly i've noticed my browsers are doing that on the computer for me so uh they just translate they know that i need it in english and they translate it for me so it's uh it's it's not conducive to language learning and you know the thing i like about the fins though i mean they do it's so it's going to be painful for you and me both to try to communicate and finish with them. And no, I think, you know, at least they're good hearted about it. they switch to English because it's they just want to make you more comfortable. Right. They just know yeah. that it's easier for us. There are places and I, I won't name, but there are places that will have more of an attitude of please, please stop speaking my, you know, that's my language and you, you're terrible at it. <laughs> so they kind of have, they, they don't want you to speak their language. That's that this isn't one of those cultures. I think Finns really admire it and like it when you, when you attempt to speak in Finnish. And uh, uh, and if you get good at it, they, they certainly admire it. Uh, but I think when it comes down to just casual conversation, my experience has been, you know, they're just they hate to see you suffer. And so they just switch to English because it's much easier for us. One
0: well, other thing that I have noticed about the grammar is that if you don't use the correct uh, conjugation, mm. they still understand what you're trying to say. So mm-hmm. even if you mess up the grammar, you, prob- they pro- you probably have been able to communicate whatever it is, and they figured it out, and they're... They can follow the conversation, but yeah, most of the time they're going to be like, "Well, let's just switch to English because I can speak that well enough, I think." And that way, hopefully, this conversation will actually go somewhere, and we'll be able to <laughs> figure out what we we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, I I have noticed that when I make mistakes, a lot of times somebody won't even correct me, and I find out later that I used the wrong one, and it's like, "Oh, but I knew that you were basically saying that you were going to go and paint this picture or something," you know, like. Um, and then I have been doing Duolingo, uh, which has helped increase my vocabulary. Um, I don't know how much it really has added to my ability to really speak the language, but I, I have more words that I, I can use on a regular basis now. And I, I guess, uh, my understanding, like when I'm listening to people talk or reading something on an article, I might be able to understand more.
1: Sure. Well, you know, if you you just get good at kind of nodding and yeah. uh, and, and saying yo, no need. No need. And, you know, just all you need is a few little phrases and uh and maybe you could trick folks into thinking you're a local for for a minute or two. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But
1: but language is important and I mean it's one of the, it is one of the major components of any culture. Um so uh, the State Department does uh, provide language training for most officers going abroad. It depends on your job, uh, The public affairs person almost always gets language. So it's uh, it's a little unique that they've dropped it, and it's a testimony to how um, how good the, and how high the, the English level is in this country. Um, but it is a it is an expensive and time consuming uh, investment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's something that people have to be willing to commit. You know, you're basically spending almost a year in Washington, D.C., learning a language that's, that has a reputation for being quite difficult and is a one post language. Yeah. So when you bring all those things into consideration, then that's um, that's how they end up there. But for most diplomats going abroad, um, especially if they're working like I am in public diplomacy, they, they still get language training.
0: All right. You know, in your your position, we're talking about the relationship between Finland and the United States. It's a it's a long and prosperous friendship. Uh, the diplomatic relations were officially established 103 years ago, 1919. So, how does your work here and the work of your office help to like strengthen and maintain this friendship between the Finns and the Yanks? So. You could look uh, for public affairs. You could kind of divide my work into
1: two major categories. We have uh, a lot of the cultural exchanges, academic exchanges. Um, So we do a lot of people to people type of of interaction uh, with academia, with with, um, you know, the business world with influencers uh, like yourself, podcasters. So, So we do a lot of those types of interactions and a lot of that is some of it's the, the soft diplomacy, if you would, telling America's story. Uh, you and I already talked about earlier how, you know, there are misconceptions out there or oversimplifications yeah. both ways. So we do a, quite a bit of that. Um, and then there's the, the the press side or the, the social and traditional media um, that my, my office does also. So. Uh, this is a little bit of both today, uh, where you know it's, it's social media, it's podcasting, so it's uh, it's out there in the media side. But if I would kind of categorize this as a, an engagement on the, the cultural understanding kind of side of things, um, so but that's basically what we do. We're the public-facing component of it, of the U.S. Embassy, uh, and that's so anytime that there's interactions with. Uh, The people of Finland, the people here in in then that's that's my office. And as far as Finnish U.S. relations, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're 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 great. Uh, It's been refreshing for me personally, uh, professionally uh, Mm -hmm. coming from a country uh, where U.S. relations are strained recently. It was very difficult to do my job um, in the in the PRC. Um, so here it's, it's, it's much, much easier, obviously to do my job. The only challenge you have here sometimes is, uh, there's so many things to do and the people are, are, uh, so busy, uh, you know, and they're, they're out hiking and fishing or whatever they're doing and stuff that, you know, then we have to, we almost have, sometimes we have trouble getting people's attention. Um, but that's a good problem to have. Um, you know, at least we don't have a government that's actively trying to thwart our efforts and interfere with us. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's a completely different situation. Um, Finland's a fantastic partner on a range, a host of issues uh, from security to, to climate, um, you name it. Uh, we're we're pretty much lined up very closely uh, when it comes to all the major issues and, and things facing facing us today.
0: Well, you, when you came uh, and started your position, it wasn't too long after that that the pandemic hit. So did you find that that had a negative impact or even a positive one on your work here? And how did it affect you and, and your family overall? Well, Matt, I guess I'll, try, I'll start with a positive,
1: okay? We learned as an office, um, and I think the State Department... it's safe to say the state department on a a whole learned how effective that these types of virtual engagements can be. Um, We did uh, video conferencing and stuff um, in the department of state, but, but it was only out of necessity. And we've learned now that I can get, I can get a a speaker who might, uh, otherwise I couldn't afford to bring from the United States or wouldn't have time to travel to Helsinki uh, to meet with a, with a group of, you know, 50 people, um, which is typically what we would do. We would have like a speaker program. We'd bring them over. We would program them for two or three days. And maybe they see a few hundreds of people, depending on the topic. That's wonderful. And we're still going to do that. But now the pandemic taught us, because we couldn't do that at all, that these virtual engagements, hey, I can get someone who all they have to do is <laughs> open their laptop and log on and they could reach hundreds of people um in in finland maybe thousands of people depending on the topic and and who they are and people you know these are these are folks who I might like I said we might otherwise not have been able to to get so that's been a positive okay uh we've we've kind of figured out that that this is doable and mm-hmm. um and our technology people were forced to to you know kind of enable some of that um technical glitches aside um but that's 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 the one positive I could think of right offhand. Um, I mean the negative has been, yeah, absolutely it's impacted uh, my job here. Um a big part of what I do is, is is meeting people, seeing people, um, getting to develop contacts and all of that got turned kind of turned off for the most part. Um for all of my praises of virtual engagement a moment ago, it's just not the same, at least for me, and I know I'm old-fashioned, I admit it, but still meeting someone in person, and I really feel like I know them a little better, Uh, definitely if I have multiple meetings. So, that kind of diplomacy's been hampered, and we've had i lost count hundreds of programs that have had to be canceled, delayed, postponed, um, projects, you know we do grant we have a grants program where we we do small grants for on issues of civ, civil society issues things like that um though a lot of those grants were had to be postponed or had to be delayed or had to be switched to virtual types of programming um so it's it's actually it's had a huge impact on on what we do on the, the public diplomacy side
0: hopefully uh we're starting to see things Change for the better and get back to some sort of normalcy that we can have moving forward. I mean, I, there's definitely been a lot more of these um, in-person types of events happening lately. So yeah,
1: well, hopefully we reach the point where if you're fully vaccinated, uh, even if you're in a, uh, a higher risk group, and and I'm getting there. Uh, you know, I'm 50 and uh, not in the best shape. So so you know. I'm I've got I've had my shots I've had what three now or whatever I had the booster shot so uh, you know it's as safe as it's going to be and I think that people are starting to realize that hey I've done everything I can to mitigate this uh, I've had the opportunity to to lessen my risk um, and yeah let's get back
0: to back back to normal if we can yeah all right well I I won't draw on this one too much but I feel like I, I should take the opportunity to ask you a question about the ongoing war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. It's on the minds of everybody right now, and uh, I'm sure you have to answer these questions all the time. It's part of your job. but uh, uh, And if you can, tell us at least. Uh, I just wanted to ask how prepared Finland is uh, for getting involved if things continue to escalate. And also at one point the US would get involved to help allies such as Finland.
1: So I mean, if you look at the level of assistance that the United States and and, and Europe in particular and other countries have provided to Ukraine, um, I think it's obvious uh, our commitment to assist in this type of situation. You know, there's a balance there that has that Washington's trying to strike as far as we know, we don't want this to escalate obviously the third world war. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's quite difficult, but I mean, the the amount of, of aid, uh, both humanitarian and and lethal that's flowing into Ukraine right now, I think it it makes it it, is really, really impressive. And I should make it clear, um, that, that Europe, the United States, and, and frankly, the rest of the world is not willing to to sit by there. There are a couple of countries who are kind of hanging out on the sidelines, but even they are keeping quiet. Right. right. Um, so I have been, uh, encouraged at that level of response. Uh, I think it speaks volumes about our commitment to, to security and not allowing, um, not allowing this type of behavior. I mean, really this, this stuff for those of us who read our history, it's really sadly reminiscent of, uh, of twentieth century, kind of pre World War II behavior, mm-hmm. and um, this, is a, this is a conflict that, that that Vladimir Putin chose that he created this situation. And he and there was no reason for it there. There was no threat uh, to Russia from Ukraine. Um, I think it's just a reminder um, that that we have to be vigilant and and it's, in regards always vigilant. We can't we can't take for granted that people are going to behave rationally. Um you just can't do that. And uh I think that my assessment of, of Finland is that they've they have been vigilant. Uh their history has taught them that they they had to be prepared. So I think Finland is as prepared or better prepared maybe than 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 maybe any of the other countries in this part of the world. They understand The threat is real. Um, They've taken their security um, seriously. um, Virtually for their whole existence, Um, you know, use the the recent fighter acquisition as an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that was striking to me that I would remind my counterparts back in Washington. The the debate in the Edes about the fighter program was mostly about, you know, how much we're going to spend, maybe which which platform which plane are we going to choose there there was only a very small number of people who ever debated whether or not they should replace them i said you saw people from all the parties basically saying yes we need new fighter jets so you see what i'm saying there was never a debate should should we spend money uh this huge amount of money there was there was some talk about how much exactly there was some talk about which fighter but the baseline was we have to defend ourselves. So I think that that mentality is, is that that's a good example of the mentality that Finns have toward their security. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know it's reflective of, of the realization that they do have a, a large threatening neighbor. Um, and I'll just say this on, on Putin. Uh, I think this is also a good reminder. And, and I told you earlier in this in this conversation, you know, about my blue collar roots. And maybe I'll just oversimplify things sometimes, but one one place when it comes to world leaders and whatnot, and in, in in Western democracies and democracies all across you, you tend to look at the resumes of the people who are running the countries. Okay. Look at our leaders in Europe and in in the United States and Canada and you name it, Australia. If you look at their these are these are people who <laughs> how should we say it? I mean they're, our leadership, our governments are filled with people with good intentions who want to make the world a better place, who want to make their country a better place, who care about their fellow person. It, regardless of their poly, their personal politics, maybe they differ on some issues, but they're all people who are, are kind of rational thinkers, right? When you have an autocracy or a dictator, that's out the window. When you have someone who you know was a former KGB thug, then – you know, it is hard to predict how that person's going to act, or maybe it it shouldn't be, right? (laughs) He's got a long history of this type of behavior. Uh, But I think that it's still surprising sometimes to people because you you can't help but expect that person. You say, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? Why would you invade this country who's no threat to you? Well, it doesn't make sense to you because you're a rational person and, you know, you're someone who wouldn't do that. But when you're talking about a bully, basically, who who will punch an innocent person in the mouth, if that means that they can can get up, you know, get ahead or, or just for fun or just, you know, f- to, for some perceived benefit. So mm-hmm. I really think it's almost a playground mentality. And, you know, you've got the, the world, you know, a lot of the, the leaders are the good kids who are, are behaving and, and playing by the rules. And maybe they have their little fusses or fights. But the the bully, that's the one that we have a hard time dealing with sometimes
0: uh, because it doesn't make sense to us. I think it's especially, you know, considering that uh, Putin feels that Ukraine is a threat to Russia. So if he believes that, then you you don't know what to expect from him because that's, he he's going to feel threatened. He's going to make decisions based on this feeling of, of, uh, of that, or yeah. that's at least the perception he's trying to give.
1: Well, Matt, you know, maybe he does feel threatened by Ukraine, but I, I tell you, in my opinion, it's, it's not that he feels threatened by the Ukrainian military, although they seem to be proving themselves quite capable. He's not threatened by Ukraine, uh, you know, any kind of, membership in nato nato's a defensive organization the thing that he feels threatened with ukraine is ukraine was on a path you know it's a democratically elected government they were on a path to to get rooting out corruption they're a successful country a country that has a shared history with russia that's the part that threatens him you know and we see this in beijing also The CCP is threatened by Taiwan, not because Taiwan's any kind of military threat is because it's a successful, free, uh, basically democratic operating example of what China could be. Mm -hmm. And they're threatened by That's that's the thing that Putin felt threatened by with Ukraine, in my opinion, is uh, more than anything. He would rather have Ukraine functioning like Belarus. Right. He'd rather Mm -hmm. have some puppet basically dictator in place that he could control. And uh, so, so if he felt threatened by Ukraine, that's what he really felt threatened by.
0: All right, good, good.